0: Wait, are you Charles Munts? Uh, well, uh, <clears throat> yes. The Charles Munts? Adventures out there? <laughs> it's really him. <clears throat> That's Charles Munts. It is? Who's Charles Munts? Him! Yeah, yeah. I'm Carl Fredrickson. My wife and I, we were your biggest fans. Oh, oh well, you're a man of good taste. <laughs> <laughs>
1: chris Gowser here with
0: wow on
1: this episode of the first run matt and i are going to go ahead and discuss Candyman. i'm not going to say it again matt i know it's fiction i still i would never do it. i've never done it i have never said candy man five times to look it in a mirror and i don't think i ever will what's the point why well, tempt never- fictional
0: fate? You've never, never said Bloody Mary either.
1: Nope, nope. I'm not a superstitious guy. I'm just uh, stitious.
0: I guess. All right, you You're just a little stitious. You know, my, my like seven year old daughter has said has said, done it herself. So.
1: <laughs> and uh, we're going to wrap up our samurai marathon with Harakiri, the last film in our series. Which means, of course, we'll be doling out the awards for the marathon. And then we'll tell you what's coming up in physical media, featuring your streaming and straight DVD picks of the week. Plus, there was an announcement yesterday uh, in regards to a big, big box set, Matt, that I didn't wait for. I said, you know what? I'm going to pull the trigger. I want it this year, and I bought it. And now, when I see they did the formal announcement, I laughed and laughed and laughed. Find out about all that and more as we continue on this episode of the First Round. But first,
0: Candyman. This is a story about a woman named Helen Lyle. She was a grad student, a white grad student, doing her thesis on the urban legends of Caprini Green. For research, she came down to Cabrini a few times, you know, asking questions, taking pictures of graffiti, people. And then, one day, she just snaps. She beheaded a Rottweiler. By the time the police show up, she's in one of the apartments doing snow angels in a pool of blood. Okay. Ew. Bullshit. I'm <laughs> no bullshit. There's there you no get way. get this from? Killed a Rottweiler? Yeah, this is extra even for you. If there are articles written about this. Look it up.
1: Look it up, Matt. Why don't you tell the fine folks at home? What is Candyman? Candyman? What's Candyman all about?
0: Well, it's five right there, Chris, so. Well, not in a row. Does that count? I'm not looking in a mirror? Well, I don't know. I mean, he is—he is, he is a, an embodiment of evil. So I don't know. You'll find S- out, won't you? Son of a bitch. Uh, yeah. What is this movie about? That's a good question. Um, uh, I guess, Uh-oh. um, a Chicago artist uses the Candyman legend as a source of inspiration for his struggling painting, and it starts to affect him as he goes further and further down into the legend.
1: So Nia DaCosta has directed this sequel to the Candyman franchise. Did you know there was a, there's a, there's a third one. I knew there was a sequel. I didn't remember that they made a third one at all.
0: Yeah. I went down to, I, I dived deep into the Candyman um, hole for this. Uh, I, I reread the story. I watched the first one. I, Watched the second one for the first time, and I, I did see there was a third one, although I didn't subject myself to it.
1: Fair enough. I re-watched the first film as well. I have my uh, Shout Factory special edition there with the unrated cut, which basically it's not any longer. I guess it just has a couple inserts that are more violent. Maybe I'm not entirely sure. So this version of the of the uh, series, though, is co-written by Jordan Peele, Wynn Rosenfeld, and of course the director Nia DaCosta, and I think. All right, Matt, there's a lot of great classic horror that is used to tell a tale of our times, or perhaps they birth certain movements in horror, right? The Cold War was a big one of these, and the Red Scare, like your Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Thing, the original Howard Hawks version. The Satanic Panic of the 80s with Reaganism and Thatcherism, right? And then basically, let's be honest, anything Romero did. So let me ask you. What are your thoughts on Candyman? Does the message that the cost is trying to relay to us almost suffocate the story, the, the film itself? Is there just, I, my, I think my big contention with this film is that I think she tries to do too much. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, so I'll just go right out and say it. I hated this. Um, hated I did it. Yeah, I did not like this at all. And it, it, checks, it checks off a lot of my boxes as to why. I mean, I think first and foremost, it's not scary. Um, And that's been my complaint with a lot of Jordan Peele touched horror films, that they're not particularly scary. And that's part of it. But this thing is just artless and it's clumsy and it's shallow um, and it takes all the things that were good about the first film and just completely jettisons it for some kind of muddled kind of hit you over the head message, which is fine. But like, I can think of better ways to deliver that message to make it more interesting. It seems like they were taking this kind of force of evil and wanting it to be turned into this avenging angel type thing. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. I, I really did not like this.
1: Okay. So what's funny is that I don't know if I can really argue with anything you said, but I don't have the same the same severe reaction to it that mm-hmm. you did. I think some of the changes that they make were interesting and made sense to me. By shifting Candyman into this, as you said, this avenging angel, this this dark force of of revenge uh, by the end of the film, it follows with what the costa is doing. It makes sense with Coleman. Uh, Domingo's character and what he's trying to do now. I have a lot of problems with Domingo well not his performance in the film I mean I see him in something I'm instantly interested. Right? He's, he's quickly become one of those guys where I know I'm going to get something interesting. I think he's underserved. I think they don't do enough or give enough screen time do enough development or just something's missing with how consequential his character ends up becoming by the end of the film and how this third act almost kind of... <sighs> I don't want to say sneaks up on you because that implies to me very careful, thoughtful planning that this was the plan all along. And it doesn't feel that way to me. I think that, that Yaya yeah, Boda his his Anthony McCoy, his journey. And if you listen, if you saw the first film, you immediately know who this guy is from the very beginning when they say his name, right? But his journey as well, which I thought was interesting. I just felt like the conclusion... When DaCosta decides to make this him this avenging force, this specter, if you will, it just felt kind of forced to me and then not quite as, as, it didn't feel as organic a transition. And, but I like, here's the problem, I love the idea. I love the idea of expanding the Candyman universe to have multiple candy people um, as a result of different traumas experienced by them. I think that's a great idea, right? And by the by the end of the film, right, she she brings in other people who have actually been killed. Historical people, which, you know, George Stenney, James Burr Jr. And there are things it's I don't know, it I I appreciated the idea. I don't know if some people would find that a little upsetting to take these people who actually existed, right, and turn them into these fictional characters it has some interesting things that it does i think it's she tries to do too much and oh what i wanted to say too i lost my thread there's an article by richard in the hollywood reporter which was really interesting and asks too does the existence of multiple candy men imply that there is a candy queen right that and that few people within the race have suffered more than black women And it would be, I think it'd be a fascinating idea to contemplate for a sequel uh, if something were to be pursued down that way. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff here that I think is interesting. She starts off the film basically mirroring uh, the original Rose's uh, tracking shot over the highway, right? But we have, it's everything's turned upside down, even from the opening title cards right? Everything is backwards. We're seeing the alternate view. And that first film was clearly all from a white perspective. Virginia Madis- Madsen, right? She's in this area, but she's clearly the outsider. And this whole film sets it up where now we're looking at this through the black perspective, and which is eventually where she's going um, when she creates the new Candyman, basically. And it's it's a little clumsy, like you said. But overall, I think I I rather enjoyed it. If I have one scene that really stood out for me that didn't work, and that was the high school girls uh, scene when they get their, I don't know, when, when they are attacked and killed at high school. That felt more like we need to up the body count. We're light on scares. We've got to introduce something. So let's have this little segue off into this high school. That was probably the biggest thing that I think just didn't, work. And I will tell you, I agree with you, Matt. I don't think it's especially scary as it's more kind of just unsettling. I don't know. What are your thoughts about what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, so I have a lot to unpack here, Chris. I have a lot to say. I have a lot to say about this film. So one of my fundamental problems with this is that they don't understand the source material, right? So the purpose of Clive Barker's original story, right? Which is not doesn't have the kind of American African American experience angle to it that the film does because it takes place in England. Is that it's more
1: class based, right, Barker, Barker's version?
0: Yeah, it's but it takes it takes place in their version of what we would call a ghetto. It's the like an estate, a council estate, which is mm-hmm. where like, um, you know, these kind of marginalized people are sent to go. And really what the idea of this and Rose's original film is about is that this is one of those things where the power of belief has given, you know, has created this, this being as a way of describing the kind of horrors that are around them. Right. So like the violence that was in Cabrini Green in the eighties and the nineties and stuff, it's their way of explaining these stories Get kind of passed around because how could somebody do something so horrible to, you know, their own, to, to another person. Right. It has to almost be like this evil force that as you kind of go continue with the telling becomes more and more outsized. Right. So Mm -hmm. now you're taking this thing that was in the first film, like did things like castrate a black nine-year-old who has mental handicaps and you're making him like a de facto hero of the story. Like, I don't understand where they, They got to this point where they thought that this was in the spirit of what the whole thing was supposed to be about. Now, if they wanted to tell that story um, and they wanted to kind of update it to the kind of horrors that uh, African-Americans in the black community face, make Candyman like a white cop. Make him like a white authority figure because those are the things that are scary. Those are the things that you're trying to explain away as this kind of force of evil, not this uh, uh, whatever the hell it is that they're trying to do. They're trying to make him this victim, but he also brutalizes people f- that have for transgressions that are what? Because you're a little snooty? Like you're the art, like the the art dealer guy, like because he's kind of an asshole, like, you know, that's that's his transgression, I guess. Like I don't, it doesn't work for me, like where you're trying to say, this is this righteous, vent, you know, angel of vengeance kind of thing. Whereas, you know, before, this thing is an indiscriminate killer. It shows up to whoever you want it to be. So, like, it just seems like they have a complete misunderstanding. And where they want to get to, they shoehorn in to something that just doesn't work. And it's just clumsy and and, frankly, just insulting that they took something that was, you know, sinister and the and you know the the portrayal that tony todd gave this thing to this being um and kind of all of the nuance to it is just ripped out to try and deliver this message just that could have been delivered in a better way um by making some changes i just i don't really understand what they were trying to do and i i i'm annoyed that this thing is going to i'm hoping this thing doesn't live on as some kind of ideal to strive for because it's not it's not a it's not a good movie it's it's just i mean it has some cool shots in it i will give you that it does look pretty in certain areas but the editing is choppy and bad the performances have been robbed of their nuance um, it's really again just the kind of sane tired well-worn scares that and i give those huge air quotes that we see in a lot of films made by people who don't understand horror films and you know, just a fundamental misunderstanding of what made the original movie good. I just don't get what they were. Make a different movie, like they're like seriously. If they made a different movie, I would probably be much more kind to this, but See, they didn't.
1: I don't. I just don't know if I can agree with that. So, you a you talk about the fact that he shows up to be an indiscriminate killer. And that's what. He, but that's what he does basically in the first two thirds of this film. He kills the girls in the high school. He kills the art gallery guy. He mm-hmm. kills... I mean, now, the DaCosta is still making a statement there about how white people accept black people for entertainment purposes, for what they can provide them. So she's still making that statement, but I don't have that much of an issue w- with that. I like the idea of the different candy men being created by different forms of trauma because even the first one... He was a figure in the black community, right? And he was an urban legend or a figure in the black community. See, I think the problem I have with your analysis is why wouldn't it just be a white cop that was killed? Because it's still, it's about just the community itself and how the surrounding white community that infringes upon them also can divide them internally as well. So they have this own... They create their own kind of boogeyman thing to keep themselves scared. They keep themselves. um, I'm trying to think what the. I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this. It's basically just a form of internalized oppression. All I'm trying to say basically is that I don't think that's accurate. I appreciate the fact that you have two middle aged white guys debating the uh, (laughs) cultural, black cultural significance of Candyman. But I still think that I don't buy into that framing. I think that it perfectly makes sense that he would be created out of this trauma inflicted upon the community by the the dominant race at the time today that uh would create then this internal boogeyman that haunts them because it represents all of this stuff it it wouldn't have to be a white boogeyman to do that but
0: okay but your analysis falls falls apart when it completely comes down to like the kind of the the crescendo of this story where you have the the laundromat keeper come in and kind of lay out his entire plan sorry i'm spoiling this thing for you guys but i mean he comes out and and he like literally lays out why he wants this to happen which is completely antithesis of what you're saying like no but that's exactly it that's exactly what he's doing but listen i understand that but i understand but it it is sloppy and it's Again, the whole point of this is let's reclaim this villain and make him an avenging angel. Um, whereas right. before it was a force of malice, and that doesn't that doesn't come across here. And I just I just don't think. I mean, like I know I'm sound like the world's biggest Candyman fan here, saying all this stuff, but it's just it's sloppy. Like it's sloppy. It's like they want to deliver a message. And they're going to shoehorn that in. And, oh, by the way, we have the rights to this movie that had, like, this, you know, great African-American um, slasher-type character. And we're going to just hang all of what we want to put on that because it's a bankable way to kind of push it through and get people to watch it. Which may be a cynical way to approach it. But that's yeah, what I, I completely – That's but that's what it seems like. Like, it just seems like they're taking this thing and – Saying, okay, well, here's, here's this thing that you know, come watch our movie, but it's completely devoid of what the original or what the, the original thing was written to be.
1: I just, I just don't think it is, especially for the first two thirds of the film. And I think it's one of those things that we have this opportunity with this property to really explore some of the themes that were touched on in the first film. And we could really expand upon that to make something more representative of our time. And I think that's well. I don't have a cynical let's use this vehicle to preach morally to the people about the times. I don't, I, I just, I, my, my feeling is that their intentions are more pure than, than than, they're not as cynical as that. Absolutely not.
0: Yeah. I don't agree with you, Chris. I really don't. I just think you're, you're just, uh, I think you're looking for this to be something better than it is. And I, and I, and I, I don't want you to think that I don't see what they're trying to do or like, I don't understand what the message is that they're trying to deliver. I just don't mm-hmm. think they're successful at it. And they do it in a kind of artless, you know, clumsy, you know, shallow way.
1: Fair enough. I respectfully disagree with you though. Not entirely. I think I've agreed with you in a couple of your points here. So <laughs> I just think it's more successful, I think, than you think it is. Uh, I, I ended up giving Candyman a B minus, which I'm feeling is going to be a lot farther away than yours.
0: Yeah, I gave it a D. I think it's it's not worth. I don't think it's worth your time at all. Do you think the first
1: one's really good? Because I don't. I think it's just okay. It's got that weird, cool Philip Glass score, but
0: it has a good Philip Glass score, that's for sure. I watched it before I watched this, and. I liked it a lot better than I remembered liking it. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't think it's great, but I think it's a lot better than I think I gave it credit for before. I think it's got a lot more interesting ideas in it, and I think it executes a lot better in a lot of ways than this does. And don't get me wrong. This was one of my most anticipated films of the year. I really wanted to see this thing. I was really excited by it, and, man, nobody wanted this to me to – nobody wanted – me to like this more than me. So,
1: yeah. uh well, good times. We didn't even Is talk it? about the commentary <laughs> and the gentrification. We didn't talk, I mean, there's so much to talk about with this film. I feel like we do a, the whole hour long episode just on this. And that's, I think, part of the problem. You got about what, an hour and 40 minutes and just everything, not even 91 minutes. Jeez, just so much squeezed into this thing that I think that it just it gets away from her sometimes. But I think there's enough here. Uh, to really uh, enjoy and bite into so that's why I ended up giving the grade I did I think I would probably give the original a C plus Really? I don't I think I think I like this more than the original did now
0: you? yeah baffles I, me.
1: no i I prefer my I prefer my candy man's to be Tony Todds but still I uh I don't know
0: good stuff I mean it, come on even when he's like uttering those lines you don't get anything close to that stuff just those good. The poetry of some of the that of that script and some of those lines you just do, are just absent here. I see because they're too that, busy.
1: They're that felt overwrought to me. That felt really heavy so. Wait, that me.
0: felt overwrought. Whereas this, where they're just like smashing you in the face from minute one to minute ninety-one, is not overwrought. No, I don't
1: think so. I didn't have. That's not the. <laughs> that's not the issue I had with it. So. Now, so if you've had a chance to see Candyman Exclusively in theaters And congratulations by, by the way to Nia DaCosta The first black woman to have a film debut At number one at the box office
0: So yeah, congratulations
1: girl. to her uh, Shoot us an email Feedback at thefirstrun.com Matt Coming up on physical media This upcoming Tuesday It is a big week For you 4K fanatics out there
0: Wow This is awesome. Brought some friends. Oh gosh, yes, yes. Everyone, this is Alfred. I work for him. Alfred? Good day, Mom. It's badass, Alfred. Well. I'll put on the team. Great. I don't know where we're gonna find the cups.
1: Yeah! I gotta make that into a drop at some point. I don't know why we haven't done that yet. I know Matt's all excited. He's already ordered. He's got the uh, German 4K of mm-hmm. Justice League, Zack right. Snyder's Justice League. He yep. told me he ordered the Steel book from Best Buy, and he's also ordered the 4K trilogy of Man of Steel, BVS, and Justice League as a 4K set. So that's right, folks. Zack Snyder's Justice League gets its 4K release this week. And there is one brand new special feature, which is an interview with Zack Snyder, basically him talking about the road of his trilogy, telling about the whole story and how everything happened. So I honestly, I'm kind of interested in in seeing that. And I will be getting this, Matt. I did pick up, I pulled the trigger on Batman vs. Superman on 4K because it dropped down to like 13 bucks Mm -hmm. on Amazon. So I'm like, you know what? All right. I'm gonna pick that up, but that's what I I sat on this. I'll wait. I think a bit. I think it's gotta. I think uh, once it hits twenty, I'll probably pull the trigger on it. But that's that's it. Right now, it's about twenty nine. Okay. So there you go, folks. What else is coming up here? This upcoming Tuesday, September seventh. Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seafried star in "You Should Have Left." A screenwriter travels to a remote house in the Alps, Matt, with his family, so they can write the sequel to his big hit film. But he begins to regret his decision after suffering from a severe case of writer's block. A couple of my favorite character actors right now, Shea Wiggum and Frank Grillo, along with Olivia Munn, star in The Getaway. It's an edge-of-your-seat gritty crime thriller, Matt. Wiggum is Parker, a down-on-his-luck social worker who finds himself in over his head when he tries to protect his client from her recently paroled husband. If you're wondering who Wiggum is, he was um, in the new Perry Mason show. That was on HBO. That was actually quite good. He's one of those guys. He was in the Kong Skull Island. He played one of the military guys who was going to blow up the, uh, one of the lizards with the grenades. Uh-huh. And he jumped at it oh, to get right, eaten. Yeah. And then they, they hit him with his tail and slapped him in the mountain. Basically, just Google Shea Wiggum, and you will go, oh, yeah, that guy. Frank Capra's State of the Union featuring Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn is being released on Blu-ray. Something in the Wind from 1947. It's basically a bunch of Deanna Durbin films. Also, because of him, For the Love of Mary, Can't Help Singing, all being released. Theater of Blood from Keenan Lorber is coming out. This is the one of Vincent Price, Diana Rigg, and Ian Hendry. The Tomb of Legia also featuring Vincent Price, is coming out. They get a brand new audio commentary on that. A Life at Stake from the film Detective. An architect embroiled in an adulterous affair suspects that he is marked for murder. Also coming out, Matt. And I'm not pulling the trigger, and I'm telling you right now, folks. Do not buy this. Wait, the Star Trek original four movie collection is getting released in 4K. All right, now Star Trek 2 comes with a director's cut. So if you and that's in 4K. And the other good thing about the series is that each one of the four films has uh, isolated score tracks. And let's be honest, those first two scores for those first two films, top shelf movie scores. If you're a fan of the uh, of that stuff at all, but no director's cut of the motion picture is included in this 4K set. And they did announce about two months ago that they are doing a 4K scan of the director's cut of the motion picture. So hold off. They'll spike them out and you can get the uh, breakouts at some point. Do not buy this. It's not worth your time.
0: So why no five and six? Which six I think is probably one of my favorite ones. I think it's yes, my I second favorite one. After I don't know. because uh, I
1: guess. They as a marketing thing, they've looked as the at the first four as, well, it's not really a quadrilli, It's really two, three, four. Mm-hmm. But it's a way I guess for people to buy the first one. I don't know. Because gotcha. it is, right. it's dull. That first one yeah, is, I mean, I like oh it. It's gorgeous. And the director's cut does improve the film, but it is still even longer. But uh, yeah, I don't know what's up with five. I mean, maybe they don't want to pay Bill for five. That could be it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but, but 5 uh,
0: isn't great either, but I mean, I'm more concerned with 6. Yeah. I like 6 a lot. Yeah,
1: 6 is great. And they haven't had the director's cut of 6 on Blu-ray yet. So I'm hoping uh, that comes out in 4K. And of course, your other super big release on 4K re- this week. I will be waiting also, Matt, for this to drop down. at was 14 because it'll be the fifth time I've bought it on home <laughs> video.
0: You've got a problem, man. Do I need to stage an intervention? And that down is... There.
1: Can I tell you what it is first? No. It's The Thing. Mm. John Carpenter's The Thing is getting released in 4K, a brand new restoration from the original camera negative, HDR presentation, a DTS audio track, DTS-X, excuse me, and then um, some other legacy features, commentary with Carpenter and Russell, the um, making of uh, documentary, the Terrific shape, terror shape, and some outtakes. But really, any other big thing too? I think I've almost got Mrs. First Run convinced. We're going to get a bigger TV for the living room and we're going to get an LG OLED 4K television, wow. which will be, uh, let's well, wait till black Friday, but, um, yeah. I've almost got her turned. We'll see.
0: Yeah. I, I, I don't like your odds. I think that'll change. <laughs> Something will happen. It'll change. Well,
1: the TV in my office here yeah. is going. It's oh, got it okay? burn lines in on the top bottom left and top right. Okay. So, and they're no, it's pretty noticeable depending on what's being shown so okay. i got a chance to shift the the 65er into my office and maybe get a 70 75 for the living room
0: really maybe you look and see what's on the 8k for uh for, for no, i told one. you i'm done i'm yeah. done at
1: 4k my you know, eyes are already I, going
0: i we'll see we'll see what happens when they come down in price suddenly you know when we're in our 60s still doing the show we'll be talking about well i bought it 15 times but guess what <laughs> The thing is coming out in 8K. I think I'm going to pull the trigger. <laughs> It'll be 12. <laughs> wait until it gets down to 44.95. 32K at
1: that point. Unless, listen, I'm done. Unless there's some kind of crazy D-box shit or something <laughs> where I can sit in a chair and experience the movie. Like a sur- or I get one of those surround screens mm-hmm. where it goes around me type of a yeah. thing. Maybe. Well, Build my own cold. home theater.
0: You can feel the cold and then blasts of heat and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good times. Your
1: straight-to-DVD pick of the week, Matt, is Death Ring. From 1992, from Code Red. I love this. Ex-Green Beret Matt Collins is kidnapped along with his fiance, Lauren Sadler, by crazed hunter extraordinaire, Danton, Danton, D-A-N-T-O-N, Danton? Vax? Every year he holds a contest where people can purchase the right to hunt down and kill a human being. This time, Collins is to be the hunted. Vax uses Lauren as motivation for Collins to really fight to survive, and thus provide the buyers with a truly exceptional hunt. Collins is turned loose on an uncharted island and four killers set out to find and kill him. I love what I adore about this, Matt, is on the cover of the DVD or the Blu-ray, it says Swayze, Norris, McQueen, Drago. And that is Don Swayze, Mike Norris, Chad McQueen, <laughs> and then Billy Drago. You'll know blessed. Billy Drago. But I like that they say Swayze. Oh, Patrick? No, nah. no. Norris. Chuck? No. Nah.
0: McQueen's. St-
1: no. <laughs> what should we be streaming this week?
0: So I'm going to recommend uh, a, a kind of a music nerd film um, available on Amazon Prime uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. It follows the adventures of uh, Michael, Sarah, and um, Kat Dennings? Gar- Kat Dennings, thank you very much, Chris. I knew you would got my back on who that was. Um, as they look for the secret show in New York of a of a legendary indie rock band, um, and they kind of run into each other, and, and the night progresses, it's a it's a little bit of a kind of quirky uh, romance film, starring two um, unconventional leads with kind of a good music background. So, if you're of that bent, it's something worth checking out if you haven't seen it.
1: I have never seen it because no? I, yeah, I'm not a big softie. I don't like romance. I don't like that kind of stuff. So,
0: Not unless it's overblown, you know, something like that.
1: Yeah, it's got lots of explosions. I got to have one decapitation or I am not interested in a rom-com. <laughs> Good times. All right, so I, I tease it in the opening of the show, Matt. I want to talk briefly. So remember last year, we're going back and forth on the Lord of the Rings 4K set. And one of the things I was wondering about is, well, there's no blu-rays included in the set right get the extended and uh you know the, theatrical. the, the theatricals
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you had to wait till this year you had to wait a year to get the the set remade with a bunch of special features well guess what suckers you get almost nothing wow. 250 dollars, 31 discs uhd and blu-ray included theatrical and extended you get a you get a 64-page booklet, seven travel poster art cards, I don't even know what the hell that is. And then you get one disc of special features, which includes a reunion interview at Alamo Draft House hosted by Stephen Colbert with the cast and then a con presentation reel. And that's it. No legacy special features whatsoever. Wow. You played yourselves. <laughs> 250 bucks for basically the set you can get right now for like $70.
0: Yeah. I had the original like extended versions on DVDs, and I I honestly, I don't think, as much as I love those films, I don't think I have watched a single special feature on any of them. I don't even think I have them anymore. I think my dad still has them. Maybe he'll let me have them so I can watch it.
1: I, I have them. I still have them. You know what I did too? I pulled the UHDs out of the little box, and I put them in the DVD cases. Cause mm. I like, cause they look like books, Yeah, they right? Do. So they're all lined up. Yeah. So if you come and rob me, look for the Lord of the Rings DVD editions because I yeah. have my UHDs in there. Yeah.
0: It's a good idea because the packaging for the UHD is terrible. Yeah. It keeps falling out. Yeah. No, it's not good. Mm. So,
1: and did you see too, I, I posted, I think it was on the Instagrams and Twitter. I, I, uh, I put down 20 bucks to get the evil dead book of the dead edition. Cause I never had yeah. one. I got okay. it on eBay. And I put yeah. my Blu-ray in there and took out the DVD. Okay. So now I have a cool little uh Evil Dead thing that for some reason I have no idea. I got, you know what it is? I got eBay fever. I saw it and I got all excited. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ooh, 20 bucks. And I and I won. And I was now that I got it, I'm like, I did why did I do this?
0: Yeah, but it's only twenty bucks. It's not a hard lesson to learn, right?
1: I guess not. Good times. All right, folks. Let's keep rolling. Let's close up, close it up, Matt. Time to turn off the lights, close the door, lock things up at the end of the night is over, the party is over. Can't stay here, folks. Let's shut down the samurai marathon with
0: Harakiri. 雲は空
1: so we close out our samurai marathon the first marathon we've done in quite some time and again as i said last week i think it really just helped reignite my love for this kind of stuff the marathon and really i think japanese cinema that's been the big thing as i've taken away from a lot of these films is i really need to watch more international cinema i don't need to watch you know, lock up featuring Stallone for the third time. I don't need to do it. There's so many great things out there. So we are now presented with Masaki Kobayashi's Harakiri. And it's a story about a, man, again, this is one of those, you just, you don't want to spoil that. You need to know as little as possible walking into this thing. So a, a Ronin, a samurai shows up at this, at the uh, uh, at the estate of the e uh, Clan, one of the last kind of well. Actually, you know this because this is what's different about this one, right? Is that this is kind of at the beginning of of the, this period where a lot of these samurai films kind of happen at the end. This mm. one is uh, more at at the beginning. So he shows up, and his his. The Lord he worked for has basically been removed. They've shut down his house and he has nowhere to go. He's been living on the streets, barely surviving. And he basically says, you know what? I want to come here to your, your posh estate and commit uh, uh Because, you know, I guess once the samurai gets to that point, it's all about honor. And since he's failed, he doesn't want to die of starvation. He wants to take his own life with honor. And things develop from there. And that's all I'm going to tell you. Matt, I got one question for you that I think will help launch us. So Donald Ritchie, who is a film historian, an expert on uh, cinema, particularly Japanese cinema, I watched the, on the Criterion channel, his interview uh, after watching this movie, because I had to just inhale everything I possibly could after watching this thing. And he described this as the anti-samurai picture. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. So I don't, Know if I can make a sound comment on that just because I don't know the breadth of cinema, samurai cinema. Um I basically am about five about five films deep so far, except for like the really modern stuff, like 13 Samurai that we watched. Um mm-hmm. for the show a long time ago. Uh, this I honestly I don't know. Maybe it is. I mean, it had a very kind of shades of Kurosawa to me on a lot of this um I mean not especially with the kind of narrative structure as far as like you know it reminded me a little bit of Rashomon so like I don't know like is it written by the same guy oh is it okay I didn't know that is it the anti-samurai film I don't I don't think so I think it's it's different than you know your kind of slasher sort of doom kind of thing but it's it still seems like it's of a subtype of samurai film. Let me pump the brakes
1: in here there. Let me explain why that is and why I agree entirely. Because everything we've seen so far, and like you, I have not seen as many of these films. I mean, this mm-hmm. and then Kurosawa, a bunch of Kurosawa's films as right. well. Uh, but the the fact that that's the whole conceit of this film, particularly, you know, when uh, Naki, uh Nakade shows up in this movie. Well, actually, that's, his char- no, that's the actor's name. Hachi Hachihiro is the character's name. And when he has his big reveal at the end of the film and it says that the whole samurai code is a facade, it's all fake. Nobody believes in everything that they say, right? And that's what Kobayashi is saying. His whole film is basically showing the lie of all of this stuff. That in the end, like even the, with the with the three, the three, um, oh, what are they called? Why am I blanking on the names? The seconds. So even with the three seconds as you put it, Matt, where basically when you commit seppuku, you have to, what is it? It's even on the cover of the DVD of from Criterion. Mm-hmm. But is it up, down, and then left, right type of a thing? You basically disembowel yourselves, yourself. Right. But you also have a second who beheads you to kind of usher you into the next world. And the three of them don't show up. they're They're nowhere to be found for some reason as well, right? I mean, and the whole thing, and from everything Kobayashi's work that I've read, is that basically his whole career was about making these big political statements about speaking up against the government and then the powers that be, and how all of this stuff is a facade and none of it matters. And it's all, they all just say what they have to. And the fact that the way the film ends, when all of this stuff may end up being all for naught, right, is just, it's such a powerful ending of this movie. And it is just so exceptionally well structured the way it uses flashbacks and the whole thing anchored by Tetsuo Nakade, as he, little things are revealed one little th- flashback at a time. I mean, the movie, the mat's 134 minutes long, but it, it just, it breathes and it lives and it works so well from start to finish. I mean, the film is, uh, I think if you want to talk about, or if you want an example of a message film that has a lot to say about either it's time or what's happening, that's much that I think I will say is more successful in Candyman. It's Harakiri. I mean, it's an entirely different subject matter, but this thing is dripping with messages. With the use of samurai coat of honor, the suit of armor, right, and what it means when it makes special when it makes its occasional appearances. What it, you know? How it has this honor point, but then it's also it's hollow, Matt. Much like the the houses as well, right? And the end is just so perfectly infuriating. It's really it's fantastic. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, this thing is absolutely riveting from start to finish. I think uh, I really enjoyed the narrative conceit and I really enjoyed kind of getting sucked in by the performances that are there. All of the performances are, even of this kind of secondary characters, are all fantastic. And it just looks gorgeous throughout. Um, I think you're right. I think it kind of did a fake out for me at some point. Like I thought it was going to lead to like a more standard or a rote revenge kind of story kind of thing. I thought that's where we we're going with this and it mm. kind of subverts those expectations, but it, you know, I was right along with this throughout the entire thing. I think, uh, I mean, not to bury the lead here to kind of s- spoil things. It might've been one of the best ones we've seen so far. I mean, it's, mm. it's a fantastic film.
1: Yeah. It's just so, it's so smart and so clever and how I, one thing too, I wondered if this at some point had ever been, or should be staged as a play, the way that the the film is shot, its use of blocking, its use of lighting, these zooms that happen, especially in the beginning, that kind of taper off, that don't happen later on in the film. Uh, it's just fantastic. Like that one scene when there is a there is a body presented with the uh, people from that from the from the house there, right? And then when they leave, and then everything goes black outside of the silhouette, or between the you know the remaining family. Uh, it's so many fantastic and interesting selections and choices in this film and its use of flashbacks and its leads into uh narration uh just riveting and again i can't praise enough tatsue nakade Uh, the way when he first shows up looking all disheveled you know and he starts asking questions and then and and then every time he goes oh you know it's just it's so i can't describe it's just Really, it is, is a gripping film, and I cannot recommend watching it enough. Again, I feel like I'm almost said already too much. I guess even before. So I read, too, that unlike some of the samurai films that we've seen, which tend to take place at the end of this era uh, that led into the Emperor, right? Which eventually leads us into the Japan that becomes the Imperial Power and then World War Two. But this is at the beginning of of that time of the samurais and the houses and all that stuff. And that's what Kobayashi is saying is even back then with all of this stuff of being about honor and it was all bullshit. It always was. And it's just fantastic stuff to see this. Absolutely incredible. I gave Harikiri an A.
0: Yeah. Um, I agree. I gave it an A as well. And um, it is interesting to kind of flash back to the beginning of the Edo period. Thank you. Um, but it's uh, – yeah, whereas most of these take place like in uh, towards the end of it, um, it's really fascinating, I and mean, it kind of one that makes me look, seek out maybe um, some Japanese cinema that takes place, you know, um, before the Edo period and like those those periods before that to see what what it was more like then because I don't know if samurai were specifically a phenomenon within that period of, of time um, or not. If I, I'd be more curious to get you more on it, but you know, just another. Another hole to to kind of fill that I never will as far as my <laughs> cinema stuff going <laughs> does.
1: We you just do, we do a year of Japanese cinema as the second films. I don't
0: know. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah.
1: No, probably not. We probably shouldn't do that.
0: All right. No. There
1: you go. What are your <laughs> thoughts on Harikiri? Shoot us an email feedback at thefirstrun.com. Really going out, Matt, on a high note with this thing. Absolutely. It's time to hand out the the golden first Runner things We we really got to come up with a name (laughs) For this thing We've been doing this forever And we still don't have a name For the awards Yeah The TFR Roar (sighs) Yeah Oh yeah
0: Glygor I have decided to escape To defy the Shogun Today I will begin Walking the road to hell But you will choose your own path. So, soon you may be seeing heaven. Choose the sword Join me. Choose the ball, and you join your mother in death. You don't understand my
1: words, but you must choose. Son of a bitch is going to kill his son, potentially, if he Mm -hmm. reaches for a ball.
0: (laughs) That is cold. It is. It is. I was thinking was you, as i was listening to that what should we name it like should these be the, the golden espos or the palm d'esposito de <laughs> <laughs> i
1: like the palm d'esposito de that's not bad at all so obviously that's a <laughs> clip from shogun assassin mm-hmm. how can you tell because it's the only clip we ever played in english during it's the really uh, entire marathon since we watched mm. the dubbed version well i guess that shogun assassin was was a dubbed version of lone wolf and cub that right. parts one and two matched together matt here are the categories, actor, actress, scene, action scene, kind of fight scene, whatever, sword fight scene, mm-hmm. uh, director, then finally, picture. Why don't you start us off, Matt? What was your favorite actor in before performance in this marathon?
0: Um, so I'm going to say it was Tatsuya Nakadai, or Nakadai, uh who plays Henshiro Suguma uh, from the movie we just watched, Here He's the principal, um, and as Chris says he can relay quite a bit of emotion and um, intrigue in just uh, a blank stare and saying, oh, as he, it's like, what do you mean by that? It's <laughs> I,
1: You know what, I had the same choice. I don't know yeah. if it's because it's the one we just watched as well, but th- I mean, he blew me away in that thing, Matt. And there's these scenes too where, so it's obviously it's in black and white, right? The The film is from what, 62? But there is this one scene where he's—I think I even tweeted this out and put it on the uh, uh, on our Instagram page. But where he's surrounded by these people, and all you see, he does is kind of look—the side eye look—and his eyes are so white. But everything else, it just pops. Uh, all these little, like you said, these little gestures, and then when you get to the the tragedy of the story of what's happening all of these little flashbacks offer something special and unique and beautiful and sad and uh, you yeah, know I really uh, Nekadei was really the only choice I could come up with as well at the end I really and thought I, when we were going through this uh, that this was going to be Shogun Assassin heavy yeah. and uh, so far oh for 1
0: yeah I mean I, and I I should have mentioned it in the the, the review we did of, of uh, Harikiri, but I think it was I think it's hilarious that the I loved it every single time. It kind of became ridiculous that I laughed almost every time where he'd be, like, he'd be like, okay, are you done telling stories? And he'd be like, yes, I'm ready for, to proceed. And then like, as soon as somebody stood up, wait a minute, I have more to say.
1: <laughs> so Matt, I'll go next. I'll say actress. I'm okay. going to end up going with uh, Kunio Tanaka as Miyagi and Ugetsu. She was the uh, wife of our lead. Desperately, all she wanted for her happiness in her life was her and her husband and her child to work together, to have their their career making these pots and these pans, these dishes. That's all she ever wanted, but her husband had greater designs uh, and was overcome by greed to become rich and take advantage of this civil war, which ultimately cost him everything, including her and uh, it was one of the more impressive and subtle performances and one of the best one. Obviously, I think the best one out of all the films. I think we're also a little hampered that we don't have a lot of strong female leads in these films, unfortunately. I also thought about going with the ghost in Ugetsu. Uh, that was also a really interesting one, but in the end, I went with Tanaka, so she's my pick.
0: Okay. Well, I think you're right. I think Ugetsu really only has the really only female performances that you can really uh focus on for these films but i i did go with machiko uh kayu as lady Makasa, the ghost um mm-hmm. from Ogetsu. Uget- um just a very um un- at times unsettling dreamlike ethereal performance that I, I thought was just absolutely fascinating and it will never not freak me out when somebody doesn't have eyebrows
1: <laughs> no i appreciate that i think that uh, i can understand where it come from there all right so then, um, what was your favorite scene? What was your favorite sword fighting scene, action scene? What?
0: So this is a bit of a cheat, but I'm going to go with the entirety of Shogun Assassin because the oh. whole damn thing is just a fight scene. I mean, there are so many good ones. I think I couldn't remember the name of the three brothers. They had a, like a ridiculous name, like the three death brothers or something, mm-hmm. like, that. That pretty, death, or something yes, like that. The Masters of Death, I think I was. Yes, the Masters of Death in the fight in the desert is pretty awesome at the end. But the whole thing, I mean, the whole thing is just... Uh, It's just a one long fight scene, which is chef's kiss. (laughs) (laughs) I initially
1: was leaning towards that one as well, but in the end, I had to go with, I think, possibly the most beautiful fight scene out of the entire marathon. And for me, that was, of course, my boy Mafune fighting off the uh, League of Assassins there, whatever you want to call them, in the snow, being uh, ambushed and then fighting them all off, uh, absolutely kicking butt and taking names in this gorgeous setting as the snowflakes fall that was uh my favorite out of everything we watched.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there was that was yeah, that one's a really good one too. All
1: right then. So what does that mean? I get director? Sure. All right. You know, this was for me Mizuguchi's contest to lose with Yugetsu. It really was. Until now. And I end up going with Kobayashi and Harikari. In the end, that one just tipped it out. It's it's just a it really—I don't know if I want to say—it's a classic film. It is. It's an epic, and uh, it, I was absolutely riveted from the very beginning. I even tweeted out—I think at one point, like halfway through uh, Harikiri—and holy shit! <laughs> so I, yeah, Kobayashi's my guy.
0: Uh, same. Not a lot of difference here in our choices, but yeah, Masaki Kobayashi was my was—I think by far the best director. I think, you know, even that fight scene in the wind in those windswept mm-hmm. fields is just gorgeous I mean there's so many little touches in that film that are fantastic and uh yeah I think it was fantastic it's great
1: and for all the great things about a get and don't get me wrong it is great this one just seems so much more complex and a larger thing to put together and uh yeah I just it really impressed by it alright Matt so I think we probably have the same best picture out of the marathon what is it we do
0: it's uh Harry Curie. No, I think it was the tale of Zadoichi pulling that out. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I think I think by far Harry Curie is the is the best of those. Um if I had to rank these, mm. I would put uh Harry Curie first. I think this is anathema to do, but I would put Shogun Assassin second just because it's an inferior film, seven number three, which is Ugetsu, but it's so much more fun that I would watch it all the time. And I think um, sort of doom, and then and then uh, Zatoichi would be my my last one. I thought they were all good to great, except for Zadoichi. That was the only one that was middling for me.
1: I agree. I agree entirely. The only issue I have is that I know I feel like I sh- Shogun Assassin is such a different animal. I think than mm-hmm. everything else we watched. Yeah. I almost want to pull it out of the ranking, but yeah. I my I would go Harikiri Ugetsu, and then. I probably I guess would go Shogun and then Sword of Doom and then close it out with Ouija? Yeah. So we're not that See, far
0: off. Yeah, Shogun Assassin really has more of a pulpy feel uh to it. It seems like more of like uh, like one of our mar- our martial arts like Hong Kong, you know, fight kind of mm-hmm. exciting action films whereas the other ones not so much. No. Not at all.
1: All right. Well, those are our awards, folks. What do you think? Who would you have when actor, actress? What was your favorite action sword fighting scene in the marathon? And who was the best director and which was the best film? Send us an email at feedback at run.com. Coming up next week, back with the uh, House of M, Matt, Shang-Chi. Mm-hmm. We are going to be checking that out. Our second film, TBD. I'm looking at the calendar right now and it is blank for the next... Three weeks, so we gotta put something in there. Uh, I gotta, God, I just haven't had had no time. But um, we'll have something up for you. Absolutely, there's a lot of stuff that's available right now, streaming as well. And uh, check us out in the meantime at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. To f- search for the first run, scroll, scroll, scroll. Eventually, we'll find us. Head on over to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. We'll read it on the air and help other people find the show. And that's it this week, Matt. We're gonna go ahead and uh, take an extended break. Please, people, get vaccinated. I worry about you. Take care of yourselves, and we'll see you all soon. Take care.
0: I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is.